Good evening. I'd like to begin tonight's uh, talk with a short verse from Sri Ramakrishna. O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. So we speak a lot about true nature and about Buddha nature. And what I'd like to explore tonight is really what do we mean? You know, what do we mean by Buddha nature? What stops us from really coming home to what's right here? And what are the pathways of remembering? And I wanted to share a retreat experience I had many years ago where uh, the teacher kind of paused and he looked around and he said, how many of you really trust that you're an awakening Buddha? And I remember thinking, absolutely, sometimes, <laughs> you know, is <laughs> that kind of thing. And, but it set off an inquiry where, you know, at any moment I would stop and through the retreat and say, well, who am I taking myself to be right now? And it was pretty much, any time I'd stop and check, there was some smaller sense of being than awakening Buddha. You know, I was taking myself to be a yogi trying hard to meditate, or nervous about, a yogi nervous about an interview, or someone that was being lazy and not trying hard enough in my meditation, and on and on. I, different qualities of uh, what Susan described as selfing. For most of us, most of the time, we have some idea about being on a path on our way to something, that we're not there yet, that there's more to do, more to experience, that Buddha nature's down the road or out there. I remember one wonderful cartoon with a bunch of fleas that are wandering in a forest of fur wondering, is there really a dog, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just loved it. So the, that's the paradox, that we have, we're just have this conditioning to think there's something out there, somewhere else, some other time. And in any moment that we have some even subtle veil of a notion that we're on our way somewhere else, we can't really realize and inhabit the fullness of what's right here. We're one step removed. So I, when I was uh, about 21, I 
joined an ashram, a spiritual community, and lived in it for about 12 years. And I joined basically because, for two reasons. One, I was suffering and I didn't like myself, and I wanted to purify and perfect myself. And the other was I had some intuition that there was something good and beautiful to realize. But the suffering part of me made me a very striving kind. You know, I, I took all my striving from my pre-ashram days, you know, achieving whether it was socially or academically, and transplanted it right into the spiritual path, across the board. And so in this, I joined the kind of ashram that matched my personality. It was very... I mean, we got up every morning at 3.30, and before any... The first thing you did was jump into an ice-cold shower. (laughs) And then we'd spend two and a half hours chanting and praying and meditating and doing kundalini yoga. And it was vigorous. And I, being the type A yogi that I was, would get up at (laughs) 2.30. So I'd get an extra hour of meditation. I also liked sitting, already having sat there for an hour, and people would start filing in the the uh, gathering room, and I'd already be in this kind of blissful space, you know, looking good, you know, that kind of thing. I had, I had this notion, um, I had this idea about the spiritual path that if you tried really hard and, you know, did these practices, that in, you know, six, eight years you could be enlightened. And, and I did a kind of samadhi practice. I was doing a concentration practice. So I would have very powerful states of, of jhana, of absorption, and feel rapturous, tingling, peaceful. And then, of course, it would end, and I'd go back to my neurotic, imperfect self, and then I'd go about trying to recreate that state. So I was doing a practice that was very kind of controlling my state of mind. There's some real value and beauty to practicing in a way that touches into tranquility and rapture, but it was a kind of a constant project I was in. Okay, and then I would crash, and then I'd go around trying again to recreate the next high state, looping and looping. And I'd go and ask different teachers, um, "So, what else can I do, you know, to really perfect this imperfect self?" And to a T they would look at me and they'd say, well, just relax. And then I'd go, oh, okay, relax. That's what I'll do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and in some way, deep down, you know, that would be my project, but I never could really let myself relax because I didn't trust enough that what I was longing for, that inexhaustible abundance was here. I didn't trust it enough to relax. So I just kept on striving, and every time I, you know, I'd strive really hard, it was just reinforcing the belief that something was missing, something was wrong, and I needed to get better. It's really hard for us to relax. You know, we don't trust that what we long for is right here. The the Buddha offered a very radical, a very revolutionary teaching. And it's really present in all the non-dual traditions. And it's that we're never separate from bodhicitta, from the awakened heart-mind. 
that any more than a wave can be separate from an ocean, you know, that no matter how confused or discouraged or afraid or obsessive we get, we still belong, that that awakened heart-mind, that that wakefulness and openness and love is our nature. We're never separate. And, the Buddha taught, our suffering is that we don't recognize that. Our trance is that we forget, really, who we are. That's the suffering. I remember some years ago, my son uh, went to a Waldorf school uh, for a few years. And uh, one of the stories circulating was about an art teacher who was, uh, her children were at their tables, and one little girl was drawing picture very diligently. And so the teacher stood behind her and said, so, hon, what's that you're drawing? And the child said, oh, I'm drawing God. And then the teacher kind of chuckled and said, well, hon, you know, no one knows what God looks like. And, and without skipping a beat, without even looking up, she said, they will in a moment, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we don't trust, we don't, we forget. And really... Um, the big question that we investigate here is how does that forgetting happen, just to be able to become aware of it, and how do we remember again? How do we wake up? I think I mentioned the first night um, that the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. And really, we're here to realize who we are, what we are, to realize and inhabit that awareness, that purity of heart and mind. So the Buddha had this inquiry, how do we forget? How do we get lost? And I'd like to read you um, Huang Po. writes, This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on, all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source substance would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source substance would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. So we speak a lot here about really, right, at the center of the training is to quiet some, to begin to recognize how lost in thought we are. And as you've settled, you've noticed, and it's with increasing clarity, really how we go into the thinking trance and gained more and more sensitivity to the difference between being caught inside the thought and really the vividness, you know, the immediacy of here, 
being right here. And we, we can begin to see the addiction. This is like some one fundamental way of clinging, how much we keep getting drawn into thought. And we all have that addiction some. We all do. One person said, we have 60,000 thoughts a day, and 98% of them we had yesterday. You know? <laughs> you know, there's one cartoon with the guys entering this desert, and there's this big sign saying, um, next 200 miles, your own tedious thoughts. <laughs> you know? So we, get, we just get lost. I sometimes think of, if anybody else was kind of whispering into my mind what my mind is turning around. I wouldn't put up with it for a moment, you know. <laughs> so just to say, thoughts are, thinking's necessary. And we've talked about this. It's for, for our survival, for thriving. It's part of the creativity and wonder of being human. And as the question was asked this morning about the value of thinking, it's a basic part of the path, wise reflection that when we get quiet, when we get quiet and we're really living in our body, our intuition, and our heart, then the thoughts that come up can really be in service of um, integrating insight and really creating an environment internally to, take, to really be here fully for what's here. Wise reflection. When we reflect on the nature of impermanence, and we use our thoughts, it can kind of catapult us into just letting go into impermanence. And as we'll be doing tonight, when we begin to reflect on the nature of who's here, who's aware right now, that reflection can catapult us, release us, help us let go into the living reality. So why is reflection valuable? But as I think Hugh mentioned this uh, the other morning, what percentage of our thoughts are really the thoughts that are moving us towards awakening and freedom? You know, I sometimes think of my mind as like a TV set going from channel to channel to channel to channel, and how many of them are Discovery Channel, you know? <laughs> Not that many. And as we know, because our thoughts go on overdrive, and because so many of them are driven by fear, but not in a way that's helping us, really, um, we suffer a lot. They're very limiting. They reconfirm, something's wrong with me. And then, of course, we have thoughts that are real misunderstandings that confirm something about the world that's not true and that causes us suffering, like that others are our enemy. This is another example, a kind of strange one, A couple from Michigan decided to go to Florida to thaw out for a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the very same hotel where they had spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate their travel reservations, so the husband left Michigan and flew to Florida on Thursday, and his wife flew down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in his room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address and, without realizing the error, sent out the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a woman had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a minister for many years and had been called home to glory following a sudden heart attack. 
the widow decided to check her email expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, which read, Two, my loving wife. Subject, I've arrived. (laughs) Date, 20th March, 2004. I know you're surprised to hear from me. (laughs) They have computers here now, and you're allowed to send... (laughs) It's going to be hard to get this out. They have computers here now, and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. silly, but we end up locking into ideas about the world that cause us suffering. Ideas about ourselves and ideas about others. And the definition of trance is that our reality contracts. We lose sight of the wholeness. We fixate on a sliver and it ends up causing us pain. So the teachings are that in any moment that we're believing our thoughts, that we're believing something's wrong, something's missing, that we're on our way somewhere else, that we need to do something, even the subtle veil of that, and we can't see reality as it is in that moment. So let's look a little more closely. I can say for myself that I am very familiar with Um, sitting and having fear arise. And, you know, I I talk about this stuff all the time, so I say, okay, I'm going to be with this fully. And breathing with it and opening to it, it's okay, yes. And yet there's still an undercurrent that in some way I'm waiting for it to go away. And that if I was really having a full spiritual experience, it wouldn't be there anymore. There's some undercurrent. Do, Do you know what I mean, how that is? So when we talk about unconditional presence, it requires a more and more subtle capacity to recognize that kind of undercurrent of thought and belief about how things are. We do what Ajahn Buddhadasa described as eyeing and mying, and it's usually on an unconscious level, whereby when there's fear, rather than just the weather system, It's my fear. When there's anger, it's my anger. One friend, um, her teacher helped her a lot when she was in a real state, you know, really agitated about something. And really gently he said to her, Oh, Buddha mind angry today, you know. Buddha mind sad today. Or Buddha mind restless today. But we own it. 
So investigating how we fixate helps us to be able to begin to arrive here. And in meditation, in particular, we notice if we start looking closely, there is a sense of a self doing the meditation. And we're going to get back to that in a moment. But the basic teaching is to recognize any way that we're fixating. This is wrong. It shouldn't be this way. The fixation, the emotional fixation. And to begin in that recognizing to loosen the identity. This is the Buddha. He was asked to give a nutshell summary of the Dharma. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever hears this teaching has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this teaching has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this teaching has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I are mine. So one simple way to think of it is that we are continuously recontracting. We're reincarnating the self-sense continuously. And it's like, if you take your fist and make a fist, it's like we're, we're coming into form by making a fist, by clenching in some way into our existence. And that our practice is to recognize the clenching And just even in recognizing, there's a gradual releasing. And so there's the clenching in the mind. Whenever we have a thought, it's the mind coagulating, contracting. To recognize it in the moment of recognizing a thought, as Susan was describing this morning, just in recognizing, it's like awareness is like the sun on ice cubes. It just begins to melt. And what's melting is the identification We're not so possessed. So non-clinging. Here, through this week, all of our practices have really been about releasing clinging. It's not a doing. It's actually a relaxing of a doing. It's like Swami Satchidananda was asked to, he's a Hindu yogi, he was asked to describe his practice and and describe Hinduism, he said, you know, I'm not a Hindu, I'm an undo. You know? <laughs> and I really liked that, because it's, it's really, we have this idea of meditation as a doing, but what we're really, the doing is that we're naturally recognizing what's happening, and in the recognizing, relaxing the grip, over and over through our body, through our mind. There's two primary ways that we begin to recognize and release what's this kind of clenching, and that we really begin to see and trust what's called Buddha nature, or true nature. And one we've been doing here primarily, and that is bringing an unconditional presence to the changing waves of experience. Sensations, emotions, feelings of pleasant and unpleasant thoughts. So we've been over and over again recognizing what arises and paying attention with kindness, with clarity. 
what we discover when we bring our attention to the waves, to the changing waves, is that in the moment that we see them and this identification begins to dissolve, we become aware of some space. Have you noticed that? That there's space, as soon as you really recognize, there's the space of awareness. That as we begin to recognize what's happening, there's a kind of wakefulness and compassion that really is who we are. We begin to kind of relax back into who we really are. So one way of understanding this is, as we pay attention to the waves, we recognize the oceanness of our being. We reopen to that oceanness. Ajahn Chah described this unconditional awareness as still flowing water. That life is changing and flowing, yet it's known by this vast, silent awareness. So it's both absolutely still, vast, present, and changing, changing, changing. That's one way of practicing. The waves come up, we bring an unconditional presence, and in that we discover the presence of the ocean. Now as the mind gets quieter, we can actually shift our attention, and instead of paying attention to the changing waves, we can actually begin to pay attention to the awareness itself. Instead of looking out and paying attention to the waves experience, we look to the looker, to the one who's seeing, the one who's here. First, there's a deepening of the quieting that goes on. It's not possible to really look directly into awareness if there's a lot of waves and busyness, then the practice is more quieting and being with the waves. But as we get quieter, there's different ways to sense even subtler and subtler veils of thought. One uh, practice that's been helpful for me is the Indian teacher, non-dual master Punjaji, who just simply asks, am I dreaming? Right now, am I dreaming? And it's because it alerts us to pay attention at a deeper level. What's really happening? Because we believe in our thought reality, it's easy to feel present, but actually have this thin veil of, of conceptual mind filtering reality. So you might have a thought and just begin to recognize this imaginary film. And as we begin to sense it as thought bites, as sound bites and images just coming and going as this dream, we enter a real mysterious kind of presence. You might just for a moment uh, close your eyes if you'd like and just check this out. Letting yourself pause right now. And be aware of sound. And just let go a little in the body. See if you can relax what's been holding. Undo a little. Shoulders, hands. And then for a few moments, just reflect back to tea time. And what it was like for you, what you had. 
Just remember a little bit about it. And then just to simply inquire, where did these thoughts come from? And where did they go to? And just relax completely into the source of thoughts. Again, Punjaji writes, What is this interval between the stream of thoughts? That which when they arise and dissolve, in that interval is awareness. Between two clouds, there's an interval, and that interval is the blue sky. Slow down the thoughts and look into the intervals. Yes, look into the intervals and pay more attention to the interval than the cloud. Shift the attention, change the gestalt. Don't look at the figure, look at the background. That's all the teaching is. Look to awareness. Look to awareness and know this is what you are. This is your own place, your own abode. Stay here. You're whole. You're free. You're home. So opening your eyes when you'd like. So what happens as the mind gets more and more quiet, and I mentioned this earlier, we begin to notice what I call a kind of ghost self. This is a sense of a witness or a self guiding the meditation. Have you noticed that some? Just a very background. It's not it doesn't have to be solid, you know, loud voice, but there's some sense of a self in there that's kind of guiding us to deepen our attention on the breath or come back to the body or that's noticing what's happening and aware of itself noticing, you know, this kind of a witness. And to really cling to no thing whatsoever is to begin to recognize that too and let go. And a way of understanding um, how this happens is that has helped me is to think of it that there's some way in which we sense we're always looking out. It's as if we're looking at this movie screen, and on that screen is our thoughts and our feelings and, and impressions of the world. And that the practice is, instead of looking at that screen with this kind of sense of a self looking out, we look back into the projector, that we're actually looking into the mind of the one who created the movie that we're looking into the awareness that's the source of the whole display. So we're looking to see who's here. And this is often called self-inquiry, that there's some kind of question or investigation. Who's really here? Who's aware? And so it's a shift. Instead of 
looking at the screen, looking at the waves of experience, investigating the waves, opening to the waves, we're actually saying, well, who's experiencing this? But it's not a cognitive inquiry, and that's the important thing. Um, It's very easy to say, well, who's aware? And then say, why me, of course, and then kind of incarnate another sense of the me that's aware and a story about it, or a story about, you know, what we think we're doing when we're turning the mind. And so it's really looking back directly in a very non-conceptual way. Read you a... uh, This is about a well-known scientist. Some say it was Bertrand Russell. Once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the sun and how the sun in turn orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you've told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. (laughs) The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, "Mm mm-hmm, what is the tortoise standing on? You're very clever, young man. Very clever, said the old lady, but it's turtles all the way down. (laughs) So what we're doing is taking what in Zen tradition is called the backward step, that we're, you know, there's a sense of a self here, and we're kind of stepping back into, well, who's aware of the self? And it's the final step. It's not like there's turtles all the way down. It's, there's nowhere else to go in the backward step. There's nothing behind, just awareness. You just return to what you are. And you can't know what you are. You can just be it. The backward step means you just become that awareness. I'll share with you a bit about how uh, one of my teachers guided us in, in this practice of turning the mind back towards awareness and just becoming what we are. Sokni Rinpoche, who I'm going to be sitting with again this summer. And the way he did it, he first showed it physically, kind of demonstrated. He said, normally, we have our, it's like we're looking out at the world. So my hands are like my eyes are self-looking out, kind of fixated. And the mind gets very fixated on... Its mind's very sticky. It just fixates on things. And so the practice, he described it as you're just turning the hands and look and see. Okay, what's here? Who's aware? Who's aware right now? And then let go, be free. So the practice is one of just recognizing, oh, okay, fixated on a thought, fixated on a feeling. Okay, who's aware or who's afraid right now? And it's a glancing back. It's not a penetrating um, kind of investigation because that would get conceptual and that would have tension to it. It's light. Okay, who's aware? And then just let go into whatever is seen. So we're going to practice a bit together in a moment. But I just want to say that um, for many, this kind of shift of attention to look into awareness itself can feel confusing or scary or just not a match for where you are right now. And so I'd just like to invite you to take it lightly 
and it's an ex- everything is an experiment. You've been introduced to a lot of different ways of paying attention. Um, just to explore it with that kind of a, a spirit. So, with that having said that, to um, just again come sitting in a way that you can relax. You can sit with your eyes closed or open. And in these moments, uh, let yourself let go where you might not have let go. So if there's a natural way to kind of give yourself that gift of softening the shoulders, relaxing the hands, maybe taking a few full breaths, And just feeling the whole body sitting here, this living, breathing body, aware of sound. Sounds just happening. And just listen. is aware, who's listening, turning the attention to look and see, who's aware, and then just letting go, relaxing completely into whatever is seen. thought arises, a sound. Who or what is thinking? Where did it come from, go to? Just turning back and looking. Look and see. And then just let go, really let go into whatever is seen. Who is aware? Just glancing back. Let go, let be. natural to try to land on something, try to get it. Just notice that. And who's aware right now? Who's listening? Be 
looking back. Letting go into whatever is seen. Completely letting be. So what is it we do see? You can open your eyes when you'd like. When we have no thoughts or ideas and we just look back, who's aware? We can begin to sense the first char- that characteristic of anatta, no self, that there's no thing we can discover. Did you sense that? That there's just nowhere to land. There's no thingness. There's no self that's there to find. No self behind the curtain managing experience. And if we think we found one, who's aware of this? And we take the backward step. So this can be a liberating realization because we cut through the slightest sense of a ghost self in the background, that there's nothing static we can perceive, no enduring self. We can't locate a center. We can't find an edge to our experience. So it's empty and open, sometimes described as the space of awareness. This in, in the Tibetan tradition, the seeing of no thing is considered the supreme seeing we're not supposed to find something, although we try. And if we can't, we make it up as a story. You know. Wei Wu Wai writes, Why are you unhappy? Because 99% of everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. So this is uh, Lewis Carroll. I see nobody on the road, said Alice. Oh, I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody and at that distance too. <laughs> so this is, this is the characteristic of anatta, no self, that we look into awareness and there's emptiness. It's empty of any self. There's no one there we can find as an entity. And yet, this empty of selfness is not empty of life. When we really pay attention, it's alive with knowing. Described as empty essence, but a cognitive nature, a knowing nature. Just right now, just as in this moment, sounds are heard, vibration is felt, if your eyes are open, form and color are seen. This knowing happens instantaneously, spontaneously. The mind's very nature is cognizance, wakefulness. So it's described, so if you just sense this wakefulness right now, knowing what's happening, and yet you ask again, Who's aware of this? 
It's empty wakefulness. A sea of wakefulness. Now what happens when we bring this empty wakefulness to the world of form is that we experience love. In any moment that we meet this ever-changing stream of life with this empty wakefulness, not fixated, just open, empty, awake, when we listen to the sound of the chickadees or see them, or watch the stream, see the leaves from fall at the bottom, feel and hear the wind, look at another that's here and sense their sorrow, see the sunset. When we meet this world with that empty wakefulness, there is a natural tenderness. It's described as emptiness suffused with compassion. This is Srinar Sargadatta. He says, Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So this is described in Mahayana Buddhism in the Heart Sutta, really as, as a fullness of our path. It's described form is emptiness, emptiness is also form that when we pay deep attention, turn back and look at awareness, we sense there's no self. There's just open, empty space of awareness. And yet when we bring that open emptiness to this world of form, our heart wakes up. It's easy to get attached to one or the other. It's easy to get attached to the formless ultimate, to really want to release all clinging and just rest in the ultimate. And there's a subtle aversion to this living, dying, changing world. And it's a dry dharma. And as we know, it's easy to be attached to this world of form, the changing waves and want to hold on and forget the oceanness, that edgeless space of awareness. There's a Japanese proverb, seeing pure awareness without engaging lovingly with our life is a daydream. Living in this relative world without vision is a nightmare. So this is the invitation of our path in terms of going really to the depth of realization, to quiet down, to be able to completely open to the waves and in that opening discover the ocean and to 
in that empty open space of awareness completely embrace this changing world. I experienced um, some of my most poignant sense of this, um, of this form and formless. Um, when my dad was dying about three years ago, um, around now, three years ago, two months from now, and um, we were very, very close, and I was just so, I was so filled with grief sitting at his bedside, and um, and so I was letting it wash through me and just opening deeper and deeper into the grief, and I finally, something in me just said, okay, completely, completely, allow and let go wakefully into this grief. And it, and it became this absolutely um, boundless love. The grief became love. And it was like, and I sat there, as, and, he, and he died, and I felt this combination of grief and this boundless love that then I would just say, okay, so who's aware of this love? And it was just empty awareness. And in that empty awareness... There was no separation. There was no separation from my father, and the grief was still waves playing through. In the um, few months later, I came up here, practiced for a month at the forest refuge, and I was really feeling um, feeling the loss. It kind of came. I'd gotten busy, and then I came back here, and it was and it would come up regularly. And so a lot of my practice was to open to these waves of grief as we've been practicing here and really recognize and allow them. And when I could allow them without an ounce of resisting, they kind of crashed open into this, this pure loving. And it was at that time again, I would over and over again sense, well, who's loving right now? And I kept finding that this this infinite space of um, awareness would open up, and then everything I paid attention to, I was in love with. Every part of this world belonged to that open space. I found around that time this poem from David White that I wanted to share with you called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, we'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Tell you one more story. Such a um, mystery, this sense of, you know, we think we know who we are. Oh my God, David, no, cried Glenda when she saw the bright lights headed straight for their car. As a squeal of the tires struggling to grip the road became one with her own shriek of helpless terror, she knew she had lost her husband forever. Moments before the car came crashing through the windshield, the couple had argued over something silly and had been sitting in resentful silence. They had had these little 
scuffles before, but unlike all their previous skirmishes, this time there would be no opportunity to apologize and reconfirm their love. Three years after the accident, Glenda sat with me in a dimly lit hospital chapel. At her request, I had arranged a meeting between her and the young husband, whose life had been saved by the gift of her husband's heart. The heart recipient and his mother were almost a half hour late for the meeting, and I was ready to suggest to Glenda that we leave. The issue of recipients meeting donor families is a very sensitive one, and I understood why the man may have changed his mind. As I stood and took Glenda's hand, she said quietly, No, we have to wait. He's here in the hospital. I felt him arrive about 30 minutes ago. I felt my husband's presence. Please wait with me. Glenda is a practicing family physician. She is well-versed in bioscience and, as I do, admires the rigor and healthy skepticism in modern science. Now, however, the power of something that transcends what science calls common sense was tugging at her heart. David's heart is here, she added. I can't believe I'm saying that to you, but I feel it. His recipient is here in this hospital. At that moment, the door opened, and the young man and his mother walked hurriedly down the center of the chapel. Sorry we're late, said the young man with a heavy Spanish accent. We got here a half hour ago, but we couldn't find the chapel. After introductions and an awkward attempt at humor about a heart-to-heart meeting between the young wife and her husband's heart, the usually shy Glenda blurted out, This embarrasses me as much as it must embarrass you, but can I put my hand on your chest and feel his, I mean, your heart? The young man looked at me and then his mother and put his, his hand to his chest, finally nodding his head. As Glenda reached forward, he unbuttoned his shirt, took her hand, and gently placed it against his naked chest. What happened next transcends our current view of brain, body, heart, and mind. Glenda's hand began to tremble and tears rolled down her cheek. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She removed her hand, hugged the young man to her chest, and all of us weeped tears from our eyes. Glenda and the young man sat down and silhouetted against the stained glass window of the chapel, held hands in silence. Speaking in her heavy Spanish accent, the young man's mother told me, My son uses that word copacetic all the time now. He never used to use it before I got his new heart, but after his surgery it was the first thing he said to me when he could talk. I didn't know what it means. He said everything is copacetic. It's not a word I know in Spanish. Glenda overheard us, her eyes widened. She turned toward us and said, That word was our signal that everything is okay. Every time we argued and made up, we would both say that everything is copacetic. Our discussion about a magic word that seemed to reveal a code of the heart within him stimulated the young man to share his story of changes he experienced following the transplant. Described by his mother as a former vegetarian and very health conscious, he said he now craves meat and fatty foods. <laughs> a former lover of heavy metal music, he now loves 50s rock and roll. He reported recurrent dreams of bright lights coming straight for him. Glenda responded almost matter-of-factly that her husband loved meat had played in the Motown rock and roll band while in medical school, and that she too dreams of the lights in that fateful night. I share that with you because it really is a mystery. When we ask these questions, you know, what is love? 
How come this existence exists? Really, who am I? It's very humbling because our mind can't answer. Now, really, some of the descriptions of enlightened beings are not ones that have got it, have figured it out, have some thing they have kind of included in their arsenal of wisdom, but it's the not knowing. It's the simple inhabiting of awareness and heart. So our practice is to discover that awareness and heart as we pay attention to the waves and come home over and over to that presence that is our nature, that ocean. And we can also look towards the ocean of awareness. We can reflect on the qualities of emptiness. Who's really here? That openness, there's no center, no edge. The wakefulness. In the um, Tibetan tradition, the understanding is that we forget, and there's a beautiful uh, way of remembering, four rememberings that I'd like to close with tonight that we can do as a, just a closing reflection, but I'll just tell you them first. And that is, they're descriptions of how come we forget. And the first is that this awakened heart-mind is closer than we think. The second is that this awakened heart-mind is more profound beyond any conceptualization. The third is that it's easier than we think. And the fourth, that it's more wondrous. So the first reflection is really this understanding that our habit is to think it's out there, it's right here. What we seek for is right here. The second, that it's more profound. As soon as we begin to quiet, we open to the mystery. The third, it's easier, is my favorite one. (laughs) We think we have to try hard. And yet, there's no way that unnatural striving will leave us in a natural state. We don't discover our naturalness And we don't learn to trust our naturalness by controlling and managing and manipulating our experience. So while we use skillful means to quiet down and help us arrive, the liberation comes from relaxing the grip, from just simply looking back and letting go and letting be. It's easier than we think. And on that one, this is Haviz who writes, what is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. So it's easier than you think. And then finally, more wondrous, the Tibetans describe this, that we look towards empty awareness and then we move through the world as a child of wonder. Just the way I know some of you are walking back through the woods, 
or even just taking a step in walking meditation, or just sometimes even feeling the breath. It's just this child of wonder. So, the Buddha's teachings are revolutionary, that we're never separated from this beauty of our awakened heart-mind, although we do forget, and that the pathway home is a pathway of remembering that's right here. So I'll just close, if you will, just invite you to close your eyes. And again, as you pause, just to let the attention arrive right here. natural, wakeful, open awareness is closer than we imagine, right here. More profound, beyond any thoughts. Easier. Relaxing, letting go. And more wondrous. catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of pearling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.